Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. This is a part two. Uh, in our previous episode, we kicked off the idea of future shock. We talked about this uh, groundbreaking uh, 1970-71 book by Alvin Toffler and his wife Heidi. And, uh, and we, we really broke down what the book is, what the resulting documentary is, what the, the idea of Future Shock is all about. Uh, we're going to rehash it a little bit here, but this is definitely a situation where if you didn't listen to part one, you really should listen to part one before you jump in with part two. Yeah, because we are using Future Shock as this kind of time capsule um, of the 20th century fear and anxiety about change, the malaise about future fretting that has now followed us into the 21st century. So we're looking at sort of like this... Time capsule is quaint um, in this kind of retro futurist way, but it's also really humbling because many of the concerns are prescient and thoughtful. So let's launch right into them because uh, one of the things that the Tofflers talk about and, and what they got right, I think, in, in at least in my mind, is some of the reproductive technology or what they call birth technology. Um, now, Toffler says Dr. E.S.E. Hafez an internationally respected biologist at Washington State University has publicly suggested on the basis of his own astonishing work on reproduction that within a mere 10 to 15 years, a woman will be able to buy a tiny frozen embryo, take it to her doctor, have it implanted in her uterus, carry it for nine months, and then give birth to it as though it had been conceived in her own body. Now, back in the day, this was like, what? Yeah. What are you talking it was, about? I remember the, the Time magazine covers that were... They were shocking and stark. This is a that really had a lot of future shock to them. Yeah, and now he takes this idea and he says, "Okay, so that that's an idea." And he basically says, "At some point, it may be possible to do away with the female uterus altogether. Babies will be conceived, nurtured, and raised to maturity outside the human body." Now, uh, George Davarsky, writing for IO9 in an article titled "How to Build an Artificial Womb." Um, this was published in 2013. He says that we're still a couple decades away from this. But um, there has been the development of an artificial endometrium, and that's been created from real tissue. And he says that depending on the technologies available, a placenta could either develop naturally on that um, endometrial wall, or it could take the form of an external device that performs some of the same functions. Uh, for instance, a dialysis machine could actually help with waste disposal. And then he says, you add a little bit of synthetic amniotic fluid, you regulate the temperature, you create sensorial stimulation for the baby, and add a few microbes, and boom, we'll be there. Well, even that, as complex as that sound, also is kind of an oversimplification, I think. I mean, I, I researched uh, the, the artificial womb uh, notion a little while ago, and I remember mm-hmm. being struck by just how... It's it's a far more complex yeah. um, event that's happening here. It's not as simple as just squirt the right fluids into the the baby vat and uh, and the the right kind of creature will emerge later. You didn't like my car wash analogy. You just kind of squirt <laughs> some stuff. They emerge on the other side. Uh, no, you're right. The the environment of the womb is completely specialized, mm-hmm. right? Um, so of course it would take a lot of work to even get to that point where you could do it. But hey, I would say that steps are being made in that direction. Um, but one of the things that, that Toffler, um, or the Tofflers really picked up here is that this would change 
families. This would change the face of families. This would change the way that people decided to have children or become parents. And he said that he thought he expected a lot of people in the future to uh, remain childless or make that decision. And that would allow them to both have uh, robust careers and to sort of navigate life in an easier way as opposed to people who were saddled with a lot of children. Because, again, at the same time here, we're seeing birth control in place, and this is giving women a lot more power Mm -hmm. and options in terms of uh, regulating their own careers and making decisions. And so he does say, hey, there could be a compromise here. There could be the postponement of children. And he says that instead of just being childless, people could decide that they could freeze those embryos and then later on choose to become parents. Now, he's correct in this uh, sense that a lot of people have delayed parenthood. If you look at this historically, people are choosing to have children in their uh, 30s and their early 40s, as opposed to what we would think of as the childbearing years in the 20s. And, of course, there have been implications in this. But he takes this a step further and says, hey, why even worry about doing this while you're having your career? Why not become parents when you retire? Well, yeah, that's that's an idea too. We have I don't know that we've seen that that vision exactly uh, pan out, but we do see later and later stages of uh, of of parenthood, sure. Sure, but what I'm thinking about is at this point the Toffers don't even know about biogerontology or Aubrey de Grey uh, who is saying, "Hey guys, we got it. We've got we have got the mechanics to begin to preserve the human body. I can't say it in a different way or maintain the human body in a way that will extend our lives." And so if if the two could meet, perhaps, you know, in the near future, you would see that people are beginning to have children in their 60s or their 70s. Yeah, that also kind of sounds like you end up pushing the deadline out and then people still wait till right up to the deadline to do things. So would you say, oh, well, now I have more time to uh, to enter the family stage of my life? Or would would you say, oh, well, this is great for my career and I'll just push off the, the child thing just a little longer? It's possible, but I just I I really think that this analysis is very interesting, um, and the Tofflers also talk about childless marriage, professional parenthood, which was sort of like ceding mm-hmm. your parenthood responsibilities to someone else, uh, post-retirement child rearing, corporate families, communes, geriatric group marriages. Okay, <laughs> uh, and then he said they talk about homosexual family units, polygamy. He's, then they say these then are a few of the family forms and practices with which innovative minorities will experiment in the decades ahead. Well, you definitely see a, a lot of that. I, I do feel like the definition of of family has uh, has changed a lot mm-hmm. uh, over the the past few decades, and the, even even the definition of of you know of, of child and parenting you know i mean because you have so many different models there now you have uh, uh again to their point that you have the test tube babies you have the in vitro fertilization you have uh, surrogate uh, mothers mm-hmm. you have adoptive parenting and i mean even something as simple as adoptive parenting has really come a long way as as this because back back in the the 70s and before the there was still that idea that you would adopt a child and then maybe never tell them that they were right. adopted, and yeah. we have a we have a, a far more advanced and uh, and I think you know more truthful and healthy uh, idea of what adoptive parenting is now and how that fits into this into the, our new and evolving idea of what a family is. You know, some of that I think plays into this idea of how we regard um, one another at different stages in our lives, because in in the book they are talking about how before the seventies it was either that you were a child or you were an adult. There was no teenager. Mm-hmm. There was no becoming an adult 
or acknowledging that there are different stages. So I think there, to that point, there's a lot more sensitivity to how children are developing. And as a result, people are thinking more about, you know, how to form their minds as opposed to like you're, you've, you've turned 18. You're, you're a man now, Robert. Yeah. <laughs> Go out and conquer. Oh, yeah. I mean, so, so like any, any, any time I watch an episode of Mad Men, I often th- reflect on, uh, on, on, Men in in my life, uh, my you know my dad or my grandfather, you know various uncles, uh, and as well as Don Draper's example, and think about like those past ideas of you know you're no longer a child and now you're a man, and how how th- that model doesn't really apply so much anymore. Mm-hmm. Like there's no like, again, so, so many of us figure out a way way to uh, sustain our childhood indefinitely and to, to put off some imagined uh, transformation into a man indefinitely. And also that model of what a man was culturally in say the mm-hmm. 1960s U.S. is I feel rather different than what a lot of us would want to be. That sort of, you know, don't, don't look your family members in the eye kind of a thing, like work all day, <laughs> right. support the family and not be there. Like so many of those models you see in, in like old films, they just like nobody even wants that anymore. It's so stifling. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what they say in here. They say that, that uh, one of the things about having a more fractured society is that you have more freedoms, is that people begin to really embrace individuality in a way that allows them to express themselves. Uh, in a way that they hadn't been able to before. Just to bring the discussion back around to reproductive technology and uh, future shock, I ran across this wonderful quote from Ray Kurzweil in a 2012 Wired interview. He said, People actually adjust to the reality of their technology amazingly quickly. It's descriptions of technologies just around the corner that they find daunting. But when there's a new treatment for a disease that works better, people can wax philosophically, oh, I don't know if we really want to extend longevity. But when it actually comes to curing a, curing a disease or treating it better, it's adopted without hesitation. The only question is, does it really work? The same thing with social networks or wikis or Wikipedia. All these things, we eagerly adopt them. The only question is, that do they really help us? When it becomes clear that they do, we adopt them very readily. They quickly become a part of our everyday world so that we can't do without them. That's true. I've read a um, study, I believe that is the 60-plus group, that are really sort of the, the biggest users of their smartphones um, because they're beginning to see that there is a huge, um, I mean, this isn't a life-saving thing, but mm-hmm. this is something that can really simplify their lives in some ways. And so they begin to get this idea of, well, maybe it's, you know, necessity is the mother of adaption um, rather than invention. Yeah, and you see in some cases that kind of skipping of a technology, you know, like uh, uh, you see uh, like a various uh, Older people in our lives that may have never figured out exactly how to program a, a VCR back when that was a thing, mm-hmm. but now they're just complete masters of their smartphone because the, the the technology is far more relevant to their existence. Well, so much easier too. I mean, yeah, especially yeah. with Surrey in your life, right? Now, another topic that Toffler touches on is the idea of a disposable society. He says, quote, we develop a throwaway mentality to match our throwaway products. This mentality produces, among other things, a set of radically altered values with respect to property. But the spread of disposability through society also implies decreased durations in man-thing relationships. And that's man-thing, not man-thing, the comic book character, for those of you <laughs> who are wondering. Uh, instead of being linked with a single object over a relatively long span of time, we are linked for brief periods with the succession of objects that supplant it. Um, this is uh, this is one of those 
those ideas that he brings out that uh, at once rings true. Yeah. And, like there's a lot of this that totally rings true. There are some of the, the finer details of it that don't necessarily uh, hold up all the way, but uh, but I feel like for the most part he got this one right. Um, because one idea that instantly comes to mind here is furniture. Uh, you know, you mentioned Ikea in the mm-hmm. last episode. Like, to, not, not only is Ikea a model of build-it-yourself uh, furniture, but it is, an, it is a model of furniture that no one's buying expecting it to be passed on to their grandchildren. Mm-hmm. The previous model was, you know, you spent, you put a lot of money into a well-crafted piece of furniture, and that is part of your heritage that you right, passed it passed on. Down, yeah. And now we, we really don't expect most of our furniture to last, uh, uh, you know, n- into next week. Yeah, there is definitely a huge aspect of our society that is disposable, but I'm also thinking about um, the fact that we tend to just kind of hoard a little bit. And, uh, you know, there's that part of materialism which allows us to do that, to just keep amassing more and more things. Oh, yeah. For instance, uh, self-storage units. I believe we've touched on this before, but... Um, the latest stats from the Self-Storage Association, they say there are now over 48,500 primary self-storage facilities in the United States as of the year in 2013. And then there are another 4,000 secondary facilities. Primary facilities are ones where basically all they do or the main thing they do mm-hmm. is storage facilities. Secondary, there's some other primary business at hand. But uh, the self-storage rentable space in the U.S. alone is now 2.3 billion square feet. That's approximately 210 million square meters. Uh, and they say that that figure represents more than 78 square miles of rentable self-storage space under one roof, an area more than three times the size of Manhattan Island. So that's kind of crazy. You know, but I, that, that's part and parcel of a disposable society where you're creating goods that are so cheaply made or so easy to buy or so uh, cost-effective mm-hmm. that you can either dispose of them or you just can keep Buying more and more of the junk, you know. It's true. It's kind of like both both sides of it. Yes, we're it's a disposable culture, but we're not quite so disposable that we're going to throw all of that old disposable stuff away. We need to put that somewhere because we might need it again. Like we're still clinging to some of those sort of post depression ideas and 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 the old fashioned ideas uh, mm-hmm. that we we need to hold on to the things we own. We need to hold on to well crafted materials because they are their usefulness will continue uh, in the decades ahead. We're still holding on to some of those ideas, but we're holding on to it with disposable materials. And so we're kind of getting the worst of both worlds. And then you have some people in extreme cases who are have huge amounts of anxiety connected to those things mm-hmm. because their, their own sorts of uh, psychological states are playing out in terms of objects. And, of course, I'm saying uh, hoarding here, which is closely related to obsessive compulsive disorder. But uh, this was also making me think about um, our relationships because the Toffler's also point out that in the future, um, people will be so mobile and spread out so much um, that we will begin to have very surface relationships, disposable relationships. We'll have what they call the nine to five or the workday relationships where, you know, you're, you're having these relationships with your coworkers, but it's not necessarily going deeper than that. And that we've begun to move away from family mm-hmm. in terms of social bonds and more toward one another in, in these very uh, superficial ways. Yeah. And I, I feel like you do see a, a lot of that in life. Yeah. Although if you want to play devil's advocate here, you could say that people maybe 
are a little bit more isolated because uh, technology has put us in that position. And, you know, a Facebook friend is just different than a face-to-face friend. But they would say that communities have sprung up uh, in the void, right? And mm-hmm. that there is a connection that people feel, even if it is as abstract as an avatar that you create to communicate with another person. There's a wonderful moment in the documentary version of Future Shock where a little girl is, has taken her doll back to the shop uh, and exchanges it for a new shinier doll. And then the store owner throws the old doll in the garbage and the music is very ominous. And then uh, and then Orson Welles tells us even friends don't last in this, in this future. Um <laughs> Which, which was, you know, again, very much overstating the, the case there. But uh, again, you do see shades of that in our modern society. You do. You do. And they also talked about simulated environments, this idea that we would begin to create these um, environments that we would move through in a more abstract way. Um, but we haven't seen that completely yet. We, we know that the internet of everything is on the horizon. We know that nearly every surface can become interactive, uh, but we're not quite there yet. But on the other hand, simulated environments in the form of video games yes. still remain a very big business. Uh, yeah. People are putting themselves in these environments, not quite in the virtual reality, uh, idea that became, uh, you know, uh, prevalent in the, uh, in the 1980s, uh, and, and, and part of the 90s, but still, they are immersing themselves in a virtual world, uh, an unreal world, and spending a lot of time and energy there. But I am still waiting for that travel lodge of 2030. Remember yeah. that report we oh, saw yes. from the futurist Ian Pearson, who said, like, one day you can go to that travel lodge and you can call up any sort of background environment that you want. You could have your sheets outfitted with sensors that might interact with someone else. You could have contacts, active contact lenses that would put retinal images on your eyes and into your brain so that you could be staring at someone, but they could be completely different than, than, than who you're actually staring at and, and transforming your reality into this artificial reality. Yeah, and that was definitely a study that gave me a little future shock. Like maybe yeah. not like the crippling level of future shock, but very much that that in awe level of future shock where you really have to think, wow, things could in the future significantly change in a way that, that shakes culture itself. Yeah, and if you think about that model too, that changes the economic model too because everything in that that um, that space is for sale too. I mean, if you like the dresser, you could just go tap on it or scan it and that could be delivered to you in one hour. Via a drone. Yeah. Thank you, Amazon. <laughs> On the subject of a disposable culture. Yes. Uh, something we were talking about recently in our very own break room here at How Stuff Works. K-Cups, because we have one of those K-Cup machines there. Uh, the, Keurig. The Keurig, where you put the little, the little plastic cup in and you pop it and it shoots hot water through there and makes you a cup of coffee. And then what do you do with the little plastic cup? You throw it away, right? Mm-hmm. Well... It's become quite popular, not just in our office. According to a survey by the National Coffee Association, nearly one in five adults drank single-cup brewed coffee yesterday. Uh, so it makes it the second most popular way to brew coffee right after your normal uh, uh, Mr. Coffee-type coffee machine. Uh, sadly, my method, the AeroPress, hasn't quite uh, made its way to the top yet. But uh, but here's where it gets kind of... The AeroPress is a wonderful I'm device, even though it is sometimes mistaken for either a... A drug paraphernalia or some sort of a sexual device, but still, it's it's a wonderful way to make coffee. Uh Uh, According to the Seattle Times, 
Uh, U.S. consumers bought $132 million worth of coffee pods in 2008, forked over $3.1 billion uh, for them last year, and that was uh, compared to $6 billion uh, for roasted coffee and $2.5 billion in instant coffee. This is all uh, from the 2014 Mother Jones article, Your Coffee Pod's Dirty Secret. And where it gets really dirty is we can consider this. In 2013, Green Mountain produced 8.3 billion K-cups, enough to wrap around the equator of the planet 10.5 times. Damn you, Liam. You will not quit telling me that stat until I quit using the K-cups, will you? I, I know they're fast. I know they're a little faster than <sighs> the other machine, but uh, but yeah, 10.5 times around the, uh, the the equator of okay, the planet. Okay, I see it. Now, um, we should mention that, uh, that Keurig uh, just released a sustainability report announcing that the company plans to make all their coffee pods recyclable by 2020. So... There's a silver lining there, okay, I guess. If you can so, see the lining beyond the uh, the belt of K-cups that are now orbiting the planet. So in our, six in years, I can feel good about having yeah. a K-cup. Yeah, there you go. All right. Or just get the little, my mom has one, and she uses a little uh, disposable, well, not disposable, but the, the little reusable thing. Oh. You can get like a little K-cup. Yeah, and just fill it with. You just put coffee grounds in there and kind of treat it like a, you know, a grown-up's uh, coffee maker. All right. Yeah, it can be done. You don't have Thank to abandon. Thank you for the solution. You don't have to abandon your device. You just it's so that little convenient. It, it is. It, it really is. is. All right. So again, something that the Dolphers could not have anticipated. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about what else they didn't anticipate. All right, we're back. Um, before we get it into the next section, I do want to mention real quick that another area that they, I feel like they maybe not got right, but are getting right, like they're, they've successfully forecast some of what's happening in the world, is they mention possible technological backlash. Uh, quote, protests against the ravages of irresponsibly used technology, and they said that it could crystallize in, in a pathological form, a, a future-phobic fascism with scientists, quote, substituting for Jews in concentration camps. That's an extreme uh, vision of what the future could hold. But I instantly thought of, uh, for instance, uh, the, the German backlash against uh, uh, nuclear power, uh, current backlash against uh, NSA spying, yeah. uh, all the anxiety surrounding heart bleed. I feel like we, we are seeing seeds of maybe not the extreme vision of where this could head, mm-hmm. but we see some of the some of those currents already in our culture. Well, and again, I think that speaks to the Tofflers um, pointing out that we don't have the structure in place. Mm-hmm. And th- they're saying this in the 70s. In, yeah. It's 2014, and we still have not caught up with the technology in terms of how to manage it um, from, from different sectors, whether or not it's from the government or from private corporations. Um, but it, let's, let's talk about some things that they didn't anticipate. Um, and one of the things I'm thinking about is the way our memory systems would change. Indeed, the way that we think has been completely changed by our technology. Yeah. Now, another thing that didn't come up much is this idea that we're pretty adaptable. And with adaptability comes creativity. Now, there's an article from io9, and it's by Charlie Jane Anders, and she writes that in terms of culture shock, not necessarily future shock, that uh, researchers William Maddox and Adam Galinsky have done a lot of work showing that people who had a multicultural experience, like living in a foreign country for several months, they score higher on various tests of creativity. And she said that you could assume that people who have overcome future shock would similarly score higher on those tests, because what is 
future shock, but uncertainty about what's going on and anxiety as a result. If you are dumped into a place that you are not familiar with, where the language is completely foreign to you and the systems are different, the systems where you operate just day to day, then it's sort of the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it's very much uh, a situation of worldview. You know this, uh, which which you often encounter when you're discussing uh, religion and the way that we we view ourselves within a, a cosmology. You know, yeah. we have this bubble around us, and in that bubble, within that bubble, are ideas about who we are, how we fit in with the universe, what makes sense, what the rules are, who is who is the us in the sentence, and who are the others. Certainly, religion is, it can be a part of that, but technology as well. I mean, technology is part of your worldview, and if you are are ever forced to step outside of it, mm-hmm. like that. I feel like stepping outside of your worldview is is a vital uh, means of of gaining a a larger understanding about what it is to be human and what it what it is to exist on this planet. Yeah, I mean that's stepping out of your normalcy bias. Yeah, right? stepping out of of what you take for granted as the normal world and realizing, hey, there are other equally valid ways of looking at the universe. There are equally valid ways of dealing with day to day life, and they and they may involve. Drastically different technology. They may involve significantly less technology. Another thing that they didn't anticipate is that there would uh, emerge out of this kind of future shock or all these different systems that were coming online a kind of retail homogeny. Um, and researcher Shigehiro Oishi with the University of Virginia writes about the idea that greater mobility is partly responsible for the rise in the number of chain stores. So no matter where you go... You see the same handful of shops and restaurants, and this is reassuring in an age where people are moving around a lot. And uh, actually, if you want more on this, you can see the article, Why Americans Love Chain Stores in Atlantic Cities. Yeah, you do fall into that situation where there's going to be a part of any, certainly American city, that looks just like it's uh, it, the same colony of commercialism in another city. Mm-hmm. No matter what the actual environment is, no matter what the actual cultural demographics are, you're going to find that same strip mall land uh, spreading out uh, uh, around the, the the urban center like some sort of a mold. So ultimately, at the end of the day, what can we still learn from Future Shock? Why is this? Why is this still relevant? You've got to use technology to build a decent democratic and humane society, right? Yeah, certainly. I mean, most of our really scary ideas of technology affecting the future uh, tend to involve a, a, a loss of rights, a loss of humanity, and some sort of uh, totalitarian uh, flavoring uh, to the ice cream. But we, we've also seen plenty of examples of, uh, say, social media uh, being used in the last few years, where the technology is uh, at least being used with the intention of pushing um, freedom. Yeah, and you do see also in developing countries where this becomes really important. Um, you know, Twitter is used there in a way that it's not used, you know, say in in Sudan. Right. It's being used there in a way that it's not being used in the United States and is able to report things in a way that people did not know what was going on. So it's really important that way. But I was just thinking that in terms of structure, that something like the city of Portland, Oregon or Portlandia is a great example. It's a microcosm and it doesn't barely cover the issues that we're talking about today. But here's a city that in the 1970s was like, man, what do we want to look like in 20 years? And they actually invested a ton of money in their transit system Mm -hmm. and in other ways that they thought would help uh, the economy and the people grow there. And then lo and behold, it becomes this grand city to, to live in and everybody flocks to it. And in the same way, 
you know, you feel like you, you hear this all the time, like you're, we're going to invest in the future and it's just lip service because yeah. a lot of it is just maintaining, um, this, the sort of same structures and power structures that have been in play. Yeah, there's the, again in Future Shock, there's the overall theme of the future is coming. Are you ready for it? And one of the, the sort of a physical example of that that I uh, that I, I encountered in my previous job, where I worked at a newspaper out in Covington, Georgia, which is uh, uh, significantly outside the per- the perimeter. Mm-hmm. But uh, Atlanta is a big urban sprawl, so it continues to sprawl outward like the like a blob, like a big uh, urban amoeba. <laughs> and there's a city between Covington and Atlanta called Conyers, and Conyers was always sort of this example of this is what happens when you are not ready for the future to expand into your area because it's kind of a an area where this urban expansion this urban sprawl has just completely uh, overflown everything and, like, mm-hmm. and it covers both the uh, infrastructure i mean the streets and then just also personal identity of the town so i remember there being a lot of talk like well, how are we going to how's this town going to meet the future are we going to be washed over as well well now think about something like a, a city like beijing how oh, is yes. that city going to meet the future? Because that city, in, in many ways, is a snapshot of what many large cities in the world will look like in 20, 30 years, because we know that we're migrating more and more and more to cities, so we've got larger populations. And so then it really becomes very important as to how we are going to manage that and use technology in a way that helps support everybody, as opposed to creating a greater divide in wealth. Yeah, yeah. Well, in, indeed, uh, some of the the larger Chinese cities are a great example of like what what can we learn from these cities? What have they done right? What mm-hmm. are they doing wrong? Uh, how are their steps to correct uh, matters now? What should we learn from all of these examples? And uh, finally, another uh, issue that the travelers, of course, uh, point out, and I, I mentioned the, this uh, briefly, uh, talking about uh, protests against technology mm-hmm. and revolting against technology. It, part of that is uh, the fact that we need to realize when technologies are too dangerous when or when is our approach to it or our handling of it uh just too much when should we back off because certainly we shouldn't be afraid of technology we shouldn't be afraid of the future we shouldn't uh, bar any doors but arguably we need to have a, an understanding of what the risks are as well well i think some of it too is like why would technology be dangerous well it would be dangerous because it would infringe some people would say on your rights as a person it would be dangerous because it would be used in, in nefarious ways and we see that again with the nsa and accumulation of data to try to get a foothold in the world scene in terms of staving off any sort of threats that the united states might think it has against it now toffler has a, a book called war and anti-war and he says that in terms of war and these power structures and danger, uh, he says that the thesis is very simple of his book. The way you make war is the way you make wealth. If you change the way you make wealth, you inevitably change the way you make war. And if you change the way you make war, you ought to be thinking about changing the way you make peace. Hmm. So I thought this is very interesting to, to put it that way because a lot of the strife that we feel is because there's a bunch of people duking it out power-wise and trying to either accumulate wealth or stature or arms or all the above. Indeed. All right. So there you have it. Future shock. What they got right, what they got wrong, some of the various bits in between. And certainly there's a lot of room for discussion here uh, regarding those uh, those bits and pieces that haven't been accounted for yet. Uh, Some of these predictions that haven't come true, but they haven't come true yet. 
some of these problems that, with uh, technology that we're not really having to grapple with now, but perhaps we're going to have to grapple with them uh, in the next 10 years, in the next 20 years. And wouldn't it be great to see a suite of studies about future shock in places like Japan or other places in Asia where you have a more robust AI presence and, mm-hmm. and you know, to really try to put actual figures to this idea of anxiety? Yeah. You know, it would be interesting. Indeed. I mean, there really should be just straight up future shock studies. I like it. All right, so we're going to close this one out. As usual, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com for all of our podcast episodes, our blog episodes, our videos, links out to our social media accounts like Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Google+, YouTube, Mind Stuff Show. That is our name there. You can follow us on YouTube, subscribe to our channel, stay up to date on the video content that we're pumping out. And yet there is still another way to get in touch with us. Yeah, please email us at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.